So we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Colossians. Last week, if you were here with us, you know that we sort of zoomed out to get the big picture, the, the panoramic view of Christ's glory and Christ's supremacy, the image of God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things and now holds all things together, and the one who is at work subduing his enemies and will one day make all things right, reconciling the entire universe to himself. That's the big picture, Christ's glorious preeminence. But this week, we're going to zoom in, and it gets very, very personal. It gets very, very specific as Paul shifts from not just focusing on the panoramic view of what God is doing in all the universe, but what God is doing in the individual experiences of people, in your heart and in my heart. Our individual experience of his reconciling work. Jesus is supreme over creation. He is the cosmic Christ. Jesus is supreme in the church, corporately. He is the head of the body. But Jesus is also supreme over the Christian, the individual. His saving work is experienced by us personally as we are reconciled to God. If you think about salvation, our salvation, like a diamond or or some other precious stone, Reconciliation, this term, is sort of like one of those facets, one of those angles on a precious stone. It's one of several, one of several crucial aspects of our salvation. John MacArthur writes this about these different angles, different facets of our salvation. He writes, in justification, there's a big word there, in justification the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared Righteous, that's justification. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted freedom. Christ purchases our freedom with his blood. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt is paid and forgotten. Jesus pays our debt. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. These are, not even all of them, but several of the amazing aspects of what we experience personally when Christ saves us, rescues us from sin. Christ is really at the center of each one of those important aspects of salvation. It is Christ who accomplishes our justification on the cross. It is Christ who redeems us. It is through Christ's blood that we are forgiven. It is in Christ that we, enemies of God, are reconciled to our holy God. Our text today will focus on Christ's work of reconciliation, how he makes peace between us and the Father, restoring the relationship that was shattered by sin. First of all, we see in verse 21 our need for reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a big deal to you, not something that you will desire, not something that you will appreciate and be thankful for, unless you think that it's something you need. We see our need for reconciliation when we consider who We were. Look in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. When Paul starts off this verse by saying, and you, he's focusing in for his readers, focusing in on their own personal experience. And we ought to do that as well. Not just to think about what Jesus does out there in the world. Not just to think about what Jesus has done corporately in the church. But to think about what Jesus accomplishes for you and me. 
and you. Think about your own experience. Following this celebration of Christ's universal work comes this discussion of what God has done in us. This is a cause for personal reflection. Something that you and I must consider. Who we were. He says, you who once were. And notice how he describes it. Verse 21. Alienated. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. This is who these people, the Colossians, once were. And if you belong to Christ this morning, this is who you once were. This is who I once was. This is who the Apostle Paul once was. Christ redeems those who were formerly hostile, alienated. This speaks, first of all, to our need for reconciliation. This idea of alienation speaks to the the fracture that was there in our relationship with God. It's interesting if you go back early in chapter 1 and verse 13, you see that our salvation was described in terms of rescue. Remember what it says back there? You can look over that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Salvation is that. It is a rescue. We were slaves. We were imprisoned. We were in bondage. We were helpless and hopeless. And Christ rescues us, delivers us from slavery. But here, salvation is described not so much in terms of rescue from an enemy, although we do have an enemy who did hold us in chains, But in verses 21 through 23, our salvation is described in terms of reconciliation. It is right, on the one hand, to describe us as captives in need of rescue, but it's also right to describe us, at least as we formerly were, to describe us as treasonous rebels, antagonists, the party responsible for our separation from God. We were alienated from him. This condition of alienation means we are estranged. And the the emphasis here in the language describes a settled, entrenched position. This was our standing, and it was a fixed state. This wasn't like one of those fickle girlfriends where it's on again and off again. This is divorce and distance, moving around to the other side of the globe, alienation, complete separation from God. Not only were we alienated, that's our standing, that's our position, but notice our stance, our posture. Not only were we alienated, but we were hostile in mind. Mind here means mindset. It's not just that we were far from God. We were antagonistic towards him. Our attitude, our emotional state, our attitude was one of hostility. In John 3, 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus himself describes this this heartfelt animosity towards God, towards his law, towards his rule and his reign. There is a latent hostility in the heart of sinners, hostile in mind. What an ugly picture. Paul says we were not the kind of people who were sad about our alienation. We weren't sitting there wishing, man, I wish that I was right with God. No, he describes us as hostile in mind against God, at enmity with him. Our alienation was willful. We loved sin and we loved self more than we loved God. 
His holiness and sovereignty was therefore a threat to us. This is how Paul describes who we were as those who were alienated from God. That's our position. That's our standing. But we were also hostile to him. That's our posture, our stance. We set ourselves up against God. But it's worse. Not only were we alienated, hostile in mind, but Paul says that we were actively engaged in doing evil deeds. This is the expression of our hostility towards God. Although we were prisoners held captive, this text makes clear that we were more than hapless victims, weren't we? We were guilty and fully responsible for our situation. We were doing evil deeds. This is not the language of victimhood that is so popular in our culture and society today. This is not the language of self-esteem. I mean, the truth hurts. That this is who we were, and this is who many today are apart from Christ. The problem is not environment. The problem was not circumstances. The problem is inner corruption. People who are separated from God, hostile to him, and actively engaged in doing evil deeds, rebelling against him. There it is in black and white. The world may hate to hear it. We may even cringe to hear this diagnosis. It stings. But apart from Christ, we are guilty sinners who are fully responsible for our alienation from God, and we like it that way. This is the sad and sobering past for these people. And it was Paul's past, too. I mean, Paul is not being critical of them and thinking that he himself doesn't bear a similar verdict. Paul's story is also one of alienation, hostility, and evil deeds. In Galatians 1.13, Paul says, You heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Can you think about a, a, a greater hostility towards God than being violently dedicated to destroying the church? That's where Paul was. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. There's some hostility, isn't there? And evil deeds, persecuting Christ's church. But notice the language of grace here. Notice the language of change. Paul doesn't say this is who you are. He says this is who you were. This is who you once were. Were. This means that this is no longer who they are. What has happened, Paul? Well, read with me, verse 21. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, in the present, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If we see who we were our need for reconciliation in verse 21. In verse 22, we see Christ's gracious work to accomplish reconciliation. This is what he has done. And only the power of what Jesus has done can overcome the reality of who we once were. There is a small contrasting particle in the Greek New Testament that doesn't come out in the the ESV, which I'm reading from this morning. There's a little word, day, which can mean but. And it doesn't come out here in the ESV. In ESV, it just says, he has now reconciled. But in the New American Standard Version, you see the little word yet. Yet he has now reconciled you. The NIV translates it, but. 
but you were, even though this is who you were, but he has now reconciled you in his body. Despite our previous condition, God has acted in grace to reconcile us. This is one of those encouraging passages, once again, that we find all throughout the scriptures where it says, this is who we are, this is what we deserve, but God in his grace, has done something that is dramatic and powerful and merciful to overcome all of that. As Carrie read for us this morning from Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of his love, has poured out his grace upon us, has saved us, has made us alive. And Paul describes it here that God, despite the fact of our alienation and our hostility and our evil deeds, that this Christ has now reconciled us, reconciled us. This idea of reconciliation has already been talked about. In verse 19, Paul says that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is at work doing this cosmic work of redemption. And this cosmic reconciliation, as we talked about last week, is not yet complete. Christ has not yet returned. His enemies have not yet been vanquished. He is not done calling sinners to himself and saving them. He has not yet, re- yet brought renewal and restoration to the creation that right now is groaning under the burden of sin and the curse. But Paul says, our reconciliation is complete. Jesus isn't done out there, but he has reconciled us. This reconciliation is ours. The language Paul's use here is decisive. Paul does not use the normal word for reconcile here. He uses an intensified form of it, that Christ has definitively, once and for all, reconciled us. As Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished We who were impossibly alienated from God have now received permanent amnesty. Amnesty. All that needs to be done has been done. Jesus has resolved the conflict. Jesus has restored us relationally to God. Jesus has removed the hostility and the animosity, transforming our rebellion into love and our foolishness into faith. We have a changed heart and a changed status. No longer are we enemies. Now, because of Christ, we are friends. No longer are we rebels. Now, because of Christ, we are sons and daughters who've been adopted into his family. How was this reconciliation completed? Well, Paul tells us, notice the gracious means of this reconciliation. In verse 22, it says, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. It's kind of funny. It almost seems redundant here as you read this. His body of flesh. What does that mean, body of flesh? Well, I think on the one hand, Paul is making sure that we know he's not talking about the metaphor of Christ's body, which is the church. He used body that way earlier in verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. The church is the body of Christ. We are members together of his body. He is the head Scripture often uses that metaphor to describe the church. But Paul's not talking about that body of Christ here. No, he's talking literally about Jesus' physical body, his body of flesh, the physical body that was scourged, the physical body that was nailed to the cross, 
the physical body that suffered in agony for six excruciating hours on the cross, the physical body that literally died. Jesus' death on the cross is the means of our reconciliation, and it had to be so. Someone had to die. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to suffer. Sin incurs the righteous wrath of God. And Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, clothed himself in human flesh, became one of us so that he could take our place, absorb the wrath of God, die the death that we deserved, and so reconcile us to God. In Genesis 3.15, shortly after Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the entire human race into this new position of, of alienation from God, There's a gracious promise. God said, I will put enmity, as he speaks to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There must be a human descendant from the woman who brings about the victory over the enemies of God's people. Jesus is this promised Savior. Jesus is the one who is the image of God, as we see in verse 15, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, as we see in verse 19. But he is also the one who emptied himself and took on human form. He became a man in his body of flesh, as one of us, fully human, even as he is fully God so that he could die in our place as our representative. The firstborn of all creation, as Paul describes him, had to become the second Adam, or as Glenn reminded me, the final Adam, because there's not going to be a third. Jesus is the one who represents us now. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, so that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. In Hebrews 2.17, the author writes, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. A priest is one who's the go-between who's the mediator between God and the people. That's what Jesus does. Propitiation means that wrath has been satisfied. Jesus himself is the sacrifice that is fully pleasing to God so that reconciliation can happen. Friends, this is what it cost for you and me to be reconciled to God. Jesus has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. It's interesting here, the the word body that Paul uses in verse 22 pairs so perfectly with the blood that is mentioned in verse 20, that through Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, that's reconciliation, making peace by the blood of his cross, the body and the blood. This is what we remember, what is pictured in the Lord's Supper. This is what has secured for you and for me peace with God. Jesus reconciles us through the cross. This is the means of reconciliation. But notice, secondly, the purpose for this reconciling work. 
Why does he reconcile us? What is the goal of Christ's work on the cross? Verse 22, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Here's the goal. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In order to present us. This language of presentation was, was used often of, of sacrificial offerings. You would bring a lamb or a goat. Or if you couldn't afford that, perhaps a, a, a dove or a pigeon, some sort of bird. But you would present it to the Lord. The priest would take it and offer it to God on your behalf. And only the spotless lambs and the healthy goats were eligible for this. To be presented before God. Because God would accept nothing less. But this language of presentation also refers to the idea of being brought before the judge in a courtroom. I actually had jury duty this past week. I was summonsed uh, here in Douglas County, and I didn't make the final cut. I spent most of the day there, but they decided I was too complicated to be a juror, so I got sent home. Um, But in the courtroom, there was going to be a defendant who was going to be presented before the judge and the jury, and there were going to be charges that that, that were declared against this man, what he was accused of doing. There was also going to be a defense attorney, who would try to speak on this man's behalf, the jury would have decided, based on the evidence, whether this man was innocent or guilty, and the judge would have sentenced him. But this defendant was going to be presented before the court. This idea of presentation here is what Paul has in mind, that we have been reconciled to God, that, he, that Jesus has died on our behalf so that he can present us. And present us what, in verse 22? Holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. The goal of the cross is to cleanse us from sin, to make us a spotless and pleasing and acceptable offering to God, so that, like Romans 12 says, we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable. But the cross is also the means by which Christ deals with the legal penalty for our sin, making us above reproach, free from accusation, so that as we are presented in in God's courtroom, the verdict can be rendered not guilty. And the evidence for our innocence is the fact that the debt has already been paid on the cross. No charges can stick to us. No charges can stick because... Because Christ has already dealt with those charges through his sacrificial death. And it's because of what Jesus did that we will be presented to God and welcomed into his presence on the final day. This is why Jesus died for us. So that he could present us holy and acceptable, blameless, above reproach before him. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says this, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus... And bring us with you into his presence. Friends, I want you to consider for a moment how terrifying that would be to be brought into his presence apart from the death of Christ. If you and I had to stand on our own two feet, sinful, not holy, guilty, not blameless, unacceptable, not acceptable to God, We could only expect wrath and condemnation. But we can have confidence that when we are presented before him on that final day, 
we will be made holy. We will be declared innocent and not guilty. And it's all because of the cross work of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the cross. This is why we sing about the gospel every week. This is why we rehearse the death of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Those who were formerly hostile are now destined for holiness. Those who did wicked deeds can now be counted as blameless. This is the goal of Christ's sacrifice, to bring peace with God and purity of life. And for those who have faith in Christ, this is right now our current status. We are declared to be holy, set apart for God. We are declared already justified, not guilty because of what Jesus has done. So this is our current status, but it's also our future destiny. That final judgment will one day be rendered, and we will reach the final part of our salvation where we are glorified made perfectly holy, the last remaining remnants of sin removed from us as the flesh is put behind us and we are made like Christ in every way. Isn't that something to look forward to? Don't you get tired of fighting that fight against your own flesh? Don't you get tired of wrestling with the battles back and forth, the tug of war that goes on? One day we'll be free from all that. And it's all because of Jesus. One day we will be accepted finally by God, not because we are sinless, but because our sin has been nailed to the cross and Christ's righteousness has been granted to us. Kent Hughes writes this, commenting on this passage of Scripture. While the Scriptures paint the darkest possibilities for man apart from Christ, they also give us the highest, noblest vision of man known to any religious conception anywhere. What other faith other than Christianity tells us how bad off we are apart from Christ? But at the same time, the glory that is ours in Christ, that we will be made like him in every way, perfectly holy, with a resurrected body, never to die again, fit to enjoy fellowship with God in his presence, beholding his face. No other religion can elevate us to such status. And also no other religion gives you the bad news, as bad as Colossians does alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. It's really amazing here to see the contrast. The glorious good news of the gospel is that our sin is transferred to Christ and his righteousness is transferred to us and this makes us holy and acceptable to God. But, and this is important qualification, this final presentation before God, this future court date is still future. And hence comes a warning. We've seen our need for reconciliation, Christ's provision as he accomplishes reconciliation. But third this morning, we see our responsibility to respond. We have a responsibility to respond to what God has done for us through Christ. We see in verse 23 the necessity of gospel fidelity. Paul gives us this amazing good news that those who were formerly hostile and alienated doing evil deeds are reconciled through Christ's death and destined for holiness and acceptance before God. But here comes the qualification in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Look at how Paul begins this verse. If 
indeed you continue in the faith. This little word if is so crucial to understanding this text. It means that everything that comes before is only true for those who believe in Jesus Christ to the end. God has done magnificent things on our behalf, yes. He is the one who qualifies us, who rescues us from the domain of darkness, and through Christ provides forgiveness. But Paul here reminds us that we are responsible to respond to the good news in faith. Christ's saving work on the cross only applies to those who repent of their sin, turning away from their former life of rebellion, and who trust in Jesus. This is saving faith. And it only applies to those who believe to the end, this reconciliating work, reconciling work. So that brings a question to mind. If you're sensitive and thoughtful and reading through this, you might think, does this mean that my salvation can be lost? Does this mean that I can start off reconciled and declared not guilty and then somehow lose that status and revert back to my former position of being alienated from God? I don't believe that's what Paul is saying. All the language of chapter 1 here, referring to salvation, is, is settled and complete and final. When Paul says that we are qualified and delivered and transferred and redeemed and forgiven and reconciled, these things are not up in the air. And the testimony of Scripture agrees. John 10, verse 27, Jesus himself says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The way Jesus speaks of our salvation he speaks of it as something that is settled and guaranteed, not just because our faith endures, but because his power is great enough to hold on to us. That's why Ephesians 1.13 refers to us as being sealed with the Holy Spirit. When something is sealed, it cannot be unsealed. So what do we make of this warning? If Paul's not telling us that we can somehow lose our status, that we can somehow lose this, this blessing of reconciliation with God, what is he saying? Well, I think what Paul's doing here is reminding us that our repentance from sin and our faith in Christ must not be a momentary action because true saving faith will be faithful faith. It remains. It persists. It endures. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see, Paul tells us there is a kind of believing in vain. 
believing in vain is the kind of believing that quits believing, which exposes the fact it was never genuine faith in the first place. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells us a story. He tells a story about a farmer who goes out to his field with a bag of seed, and he scatters the seed across the field. Some of the seed falls on the path where everybody walked. It was hard packed, so it never took root. The birds ate it up, so that, that's a waste. But there are several other kinds of soil in this field. Some soil in the field had shallow soil, topsoil, but it had a lot of rock underneath. And so there was no depth. The seed sprouted up at first, and it looked like you were going to get a harvest out of that soil. There's also other soil that had a lot of weedy seeds in it already. And as, as the crop sprouted up, so did the thorns and the thistles. And then there was good soil that didn't have any weeds, and it had depth. And the, the, so the seed took root in all three of these kinds of soil. The rocky soil, the weedy soil, and the good soil. All three sprouted up at first. But you know what happened over time? Over time, it became proven which soil was the good soil. Because when the sun came out, the, the seed that sprouted in the rocky soil, it didn't have deep roots, and so it withered. And when the, 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 the seed sprung up in the weedy soil, eventually the thorns choked it out, blocked the sun from it, stole the nutrients from the soil, and it withered and failed as well. But the good soil, it bore fruit. There was a great harvest. Jesus says, listen, those soils are different kinds of hearts. Some people at first seem to respond to the gospel. But later, over time, it becomes evident that the roots never went deep. Because when adversity comes, they wither. Or the cares and concerns of the world choke out the gospel. Persistent and ongoing faith and repentance. Not just some momentary experience, but a lifelong pursuit of Christ marks the one who is truly saved. Perseverance, therefore, is proof of genuine faith. Those who do not persist, those who fall away, they give evidence that they were never genuine in the first place. This is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, speaking of those who abandoned the faith, who left the church, who forsook Christ, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The reality is there will always be those in the church who at first seem interested in Christ, who appear to be Christians, but they fall away. They abandon Christ. And that gives evidence that there was never the kind of change in their heart that saving faith produces. Look at how Paul describes this persistent faith. He describes it as stable and steadfast. Stable has to do with having a good, solid foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation has been laid through the, the writings of the prophets and the apostles, and we are firmly established upon that. We're to be stable in our faith. Steadfast refers to being firmly seated like a statue that's firmly seated on, on its pillar, or a rider that, that has a good mount on his horse. He says we're to not be shifting, not moving away from what we've already received, remaining where we are. In Galatians chapter 1, 
verses 6 through 7, Paul writes to another church. And he says, I'm, asto- I'm astonished. I'm astounded. My mind is blown that you guys are already moving away to a different gospel. And he says, not that there is another gospel. You're embracing a counterfeit. And he has to rebuke them and say, you need to get back to the things that you first received and embraced and believed. Don't shift away. Don't move away from the hope of the gospel. That's what he tells us. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He says, this is the gospel that you heard. Look back earlier in chapter 1. Paul rejoiced earlier when, verse 4, he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love they had for all the saints because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. He says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. They had heard this gospel preached by Epaphras. And it was a specific gospel with specific content. Paul says, don't move on from that. Hold on to what you first heard from Epaphras, from what you've already received This gospel that is producing fruit in you and spreading throughout the whole world. This is really the central concern of Paul's letter. It's kind of funny. I really think that you can sort of expand out this verse and you've got the entire book of Colossians. He says, don't move away from the hope of the gospel. This gospel that is defined in chapter 1. This moving away, he warns, against, uh, warns us against in chapter 2. And then in verse 3 and 4, he shows us what it looks like to continue in the faith, to live out this faith in Christ and be faithful to him. So I really believe Paul's en- entire concern for Colossians can really be distilled down into this text. Who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and the importance of continuing in that. He says, don't ever be led astray. So there's a warning here. There's a warning. Don't walk away from Christ. But I want you to be encouraged this morning because I think that Paul is not only warning them, I also believe that Paul is very confident of the outcome. He's confident that they will endure. They must and they will. Because Paul knows that God's grace is ultimately what enables us to endure. It is God's grace that ultimately guarantees our safe passage home. Although we are called to persevere in our faith, the one we have faith in is perfectly faithful and he holds on to us. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul says, Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that encouraging? Even as we are called to persist, even though we are warned not to walk away, we are encouraged that Christ will sustain us to the end, that he is faithful, even though we are always not perfectly faithful. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes to that church and says, I am sure of this. Here's confidence. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love what J.I. Packer writes on the idea of the perseverance of the saints. The, the importance that our faith endure to the end. He says, let it first be said that in declaring the eternal security of God's people, it is clearer to speak of their preservation than, as is commonly done, of their perseverance. Perseverance means persistence under discouraging and contrary pressure. The assertion that believers persevere in the faith and obedience despite everything is true. But the reason is that Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, persists in preserving them. 
That's confidence. We are confident in Christ. And that is why we don't want to walk away from him. Because he is the only one that can preserve us to the end. 1 Peter 1.5 says that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I read often from the little book of Jude as we close our services. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. There's that same language again. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great, with great joy. That's encouraging to me. I am warned by this passage. I don't want to remove the teeth from it. There is a real warning here, but there is also encouragement. Paul prayed for them back earlier in chapter 1. That they would be, in verse 11, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all what? Endurance with patience and joy. Paul knows the source of the strength that they need to persevere in their faith. And he is confident that God can and will give it. Martin Luther, the reformer, who had a tender conscience and a very active conscience. He was very aware of his guilt before God wrote this. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. That's the confidence that you and I need. That's the confidence we need. Jesus prays for our preservation continually. The Father promises our preservation. The power of his spirit ensures it. How then will it not come to pass? This is what God is doing in the world, saving sinners through the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. It is the message that has been proclaimed to all. It is the message that Paul has been commissioned as the minister of the gospel to take to the world. And it is a message that we must hold on to tenaciously with grateful and confident faith. We who believe have personally experienced the reconciling work of Christ. We have peace with God and are destined one day to stand before him holy and blameless. This is what Christ has accomplished through his death on the cross. But the final experience of this salvation requires fidelity, requires faithfulness. Do not abandon Christ and his gospel. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So hold on to Christ with everything that you have, trusting that he will hold on to you. So I think there's a lot of personal application here for each of us. Each of us need to personally consider who we were before Christ and consider what Christ has done to reconcile us to God. Don't ever move on from Christ to other things. We need to sink our roots ever deeper into the gracious soil of the gospel and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. But I think there's also some corporate application here. This is something you and I personally need to apply, but I believe that this text also applies to the church as a whole because the church must be vigilant to guard against anything that would diminish or redefine Christ and his work on the cross. The church as a whole needs to be careful to continue in the faith, to be stable and steadfast, and to never shift away from the hope of the gospel. Because sometimes churches do. Sometimes churches do. In Acts 20, 28, Paul writes to the believers at Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That is a very real warning that the church must heed. You and I must never move on for the gospel, but the church must never move on from the gospel either. And you and I have a responsibility to make sure that happens. If I ever move away from the gospel, you all are responsible to fire me, okay? That has to happen. That has to happen. There is no salvation outside the gospel. So when the gospel stops being preached, the church will die. Jude 1, verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The truth of Christ's work on the cross, the necessity of faith and repentance, trusting in Jesus, is so precious, so essential, so crucial to our salvation that we must be willing to die for it if necessary. We cannot tolerate anything that drifts away from the gospel. If we lose Christ and his gospel, we lose everything. This means the church cannot tolerate false teachers. The church cannot tolerate gospel negligence. The church cannot tolerate a Christless Christianity. But I think there's also some application here, and with this, we'll wrap up. An application as we consider the next generation. I want to speak for a moment just to some of the younger folks in the room. Because I'm guessing that you all are here, and a lot of you want to be here, but you're here because your parents made you come. Okay, let's be honest. You're here because your parents make you come. Just because you come to church and because your parents believe this does not mean that you are reconciled to God. You have to make this faith your own. It has to be yours. Will you persevere in the faith when you get older and your parents don't make you go to church? Will this faith be yours when you go off into the workplace or you go off to school and other people present you a different way of looking at the world? Will you persevere in your faith? Will you keep trusting in Jesus? Will you keep believing what the scriptures say? Will you, will you keep turning from sin and depending on Christ as your Savior? This has to be yours. It has to be yours. There's no promise of salvation for you if you do not continue in the faith. And if I can speak to the parents in the room for just a moment, how are you preparing your kids for the tests and the trials and the distractions and the temptations that will face them out there in the world? I think it's interesting here. Paul's approach is not apologetics, although there's definitely a place for apologetics and value for all the arguments and the explanations. But Paul's not placing his hope in apologetics to help people persevere in the faith. Paul doesn't do this through sheltering them, keeping them in a bubble, controlling them, hovering over them to micromanage every influence in the world to make sure that they never hear about any of these other ideas that are out there. 
What's Paul's primary tactic? To encourage these people to persevere in the faith. He preaches the gospel to them. He preaches the gospel to them. Parents, Sunday school teachers, aunts and uncles, church members who are around some of these little kids, if we can give these kids one thing, we must give them this, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If it is preached with power and clarity, then they have the opportunity to respond in faith and repentance. And when they respond, when Christ does that work in their heart, it doesn't matter what college they go to. It doesn't matter what their friends around them say. It doesn't matter what distractions are out there in the world. It doesn't matter what other competing worldviews and ideologies are there. If the gospel takes root in their heart, they will persevere to the end. So on the one hand, this is encouraging. This is what we must do. But on the other hand, it's heartbreaking because we can't make the gospel take root in a person's heart. And there are many parents in here in this room who are heartbroken because you have kids who don't believe. And you can't make them. So what do we do? We do what Paul did. We preach the true gospel and trust that the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the message is all that is needed to make a dead heart come alive and to help them persevere to the end all the way to the finish line if our kids get a hold of the message of the gospel it will change them and if they become rooted in christ they will persevere to the end so as we conclude here i want you just to take a moment and think about your own salvation think about who you were think about what christ has done for you think about where you now stand because of jesus and where we will one day all stand in his presence. It's all because of Christ. Because of his righteous life, because of his sacrificial death, because of the power of his resurrection. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus and trust confidently in him and resolve never to waver or drift away from the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, as we read your word, we are humbled to think that you would love sinful people like us who are separated from you, who are hostile in our mind and our heart, who have consistently been engaged in doing evil deeds, yet you loved us so much that you sent your son to suffer and die on the cross so that whoever believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That is such good news. We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for us in restoring us to God. We thank you for the hope we have that one day we will be presented holy and blameless, not because of our performance, but because of your provision on the cross. And God, we are sobered by this warning that those who do not continue in the faith are counterfeits, and they have never truly experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. Their faith was not genuine. Lord, help us to examine our own hearts this morning to make our calling and election sure to check ourselves, to see if we truly are believing in Christ. And God, if there are any in the room today who are not trusting in you, I pray that you would expose their unbelief, convict them of sin, and draw them to yourself to receive your reconciling grace. And God, I do pray that we would all continue in this faith, that we would guard our own hearts, that we would be vigilant to guard the church, and that we would faithfully call the next generation to believe and to persevere as well. We pray for your help in this, confident that you are able to hold us and preserve us to the end. 
We pray in your name. Amen.